Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Changes. My guest today is Louise Kennedy. Louise grew up in Belfast, now lives in Sligo in the south of Ireland. She worked as a chef for almost 30 years before signing up for a writing group in 2014, after which the course of her life changed completely. Her debut novel, Trespasses, is a love story between a Protestant and a Catholic set in a small town near Belfast in 1975, at the height of the Troubles. It came out last year and has been a huge success. It was awarded Novel of the Year for a myriad of publications from the time to The Guardian. Then it won Debut of the Year at the British Book Awards, Irish Novel of the Year at the Anne Post Book Awards, as well as being shortlisted for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Louise Kennedy, hello. Welcome to Changes. It's such a pleasure to have you. Hello, Andy. Thank you very much for having me. Congratulations on Trespasses. Thank you very much. You are now living the life of an international writer. Does it feel real yet? The fact that the book has travelled so far and moved so many people. I don't know, it, it sort of doesn't, it doesn't. Maybe, um, you know, at festivals or, uh, and stuff like that. Um, or if I go on the internet, I think, well, geez, there was a book. Uh, but the rest of it, it doesn't feel, it doesn't really feel, uh, I don't know, in some ways it feels like um, somebody else wrote it. Would you call yourself an author? I mean, obviously I would call you an author, but I don't know whether, what relationship you have with that word. No, I yet. don't know. I even see like a, a wanker when I call myself a, a writer. So um, I, yeah. I think I'm much happier with the do and then the being or something. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> I, mean, I never felt like that. I mean, I didn't say I cook, you know, when I used to be a chef and people said, what do you yeah. do? You know, I didn't mind saying I was a chef. I think when I was a child, I thought that writers are like magical people or something. And maybe um, I don't want to presume to say that I'm a writer. There's so many things I want to talk about. You just touched on the fact that you were a chef for 30 years. Um, I think a lot of the people who listen to this podcast will be really inspired by how you came to writing um, and will want to hear that story um, but let's start at the start, if that's OK, and touch on the biggest change that you went through in your childhood. So what was that? The biggest change probably happened in 1975 when after a couple of bomb attacks on the pub that my granny owned, that my my mother worked in it and my uncle worked in it. It was very much a part of my childhood. I was kind of rare to both, really. Um, can, can I ask what the family uh, was? So you have mum and dad. Would you have brothers and sisters and stuff as yeah, well? Yeah, so I, I'm the eldest. So at the time, I was the eldest of, of three girls. And right. um, then after after we left the north and moved to the south, my mother had, uh, had the boy she had long been waiting for. Right. <laughs> um, but in May 70. Three a bomb was planted in the pub and it was discovered and defused. And then in seventy four, another attempt was made, and this time the bomb detonated. Now, reasonable warning had been given, so the place had been cleared, but the building was damaged. But I think even more than that, there was a message in there that maybe um, people didn't want us in the town anymore or were put this out of business. And can you give us the context of that, Louise? Just for the, those who might not understand, I'm not expecting you to explain the entire history of sectarian Northern Ireland, but in terms of your place and, and the pub's place, why would they have not wanted you there? So, um, 
Trespath is a work of fiction. My novel is a work of fiction, but it's very much based on, I suppose, on my background. So we um, were part of a small Catholic community in a predominantly Protestant town. Um, you know, kind of, we were made up about 10%. On on the surface, things often looked to be quite polite, um, but there wasn't an, an undercurrent of like, sectarianism. That was systemic, but, but also... Um, there was sort of day-to-day stuff. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the Catholic middle class really seemed to me to be made up of uh, bookies, publicans, mm. a few doctors and a few solicitors. Um, and tell us why that, why why you think that is. The reason I think that is, is because I think that providing drinking and gambling services, those were businesses that maybe Protestants didn't want to be associated with because they were considered um, immoral. Um, and uh, yeah, Catholics, it didn't seem to have any such qualms or maybe it's because it was all, um, all, all that was available to them. I should just put in here and say, and for those who don't know, the history of the sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland is that Catholics did not have rights to jobs in the same way or housing in the same way that Protestants yeah, did. Um, yeah, so there, there was. Um, there was slim pickings. Very slim pickings, exactly. Yeah, so um, I, I think as well, there, there did seem to be a pattern. People have um, ha- have maybe been able to figure this out later on, that maybe Catholics who were doing well, their businesses tended to be uh, targeted. But it also might be uh, as simple as if you have a pub, your name's over the door and people know where to find it. So, right. um, you know, I suppose at the time, by the time that our pub was um, attacked, there'd already been a few years of, um, of a campaign of, of sectarian um, killing. And what kind of woman was your grandmother? Um, she's kind of great, actually. Um, she herself had been badly injured in a bomb um, in 1971. Wow. Yeah, really badly injured, actually. Uh, so badly uh, so that um, it was initially reported as a, a fatality. What? Yeah, but I mean, she would never have used, um, she'd never, ever have used the word trauma. Uh, she wouldn't have known what it meant. And the only time she ever kind of alluded uh, to the bomb was to tell this story to entertain people, which was that um, she'd had several surgeries and she'd hold the stitches and you know, she'd lost a lot of blood and um, she'd been sedated. And when she came around, there was someone around standing over her she'd never seen in her life. Mm-hmm. And she said, who are you? And he said, um, he said, I'm one of the ambulance drivers. And apparently she had been on her way to the bank with the takings from the pub right. to make a lodgment um, when, when this bomb exploded, the random bomb exploded in the town. And, okay, so um, she wasn't a target. She was just walking past. Oh, she was still, yeah, 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 she was just walking past the pub. But he said that they nearly had to break her arm to get the handbag off her with the money in it. That there was no way. Oh my god! He was parsing with it. So even uh, like unconscious or whatever, unconscious she's like... and bleeding to death, she wasn't parting with the money. So um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I I, I get them. You know, she's pretty um a, a bullion uh, kind of a person. Now she did all of her life have um have uh, really overt signs of what we would now call post traumatic stress. You know, if there was a loud noise, she went to pieces and. You know, she probably had struggles with um, with alcohol uh, later on as well, um, which we probably didn't particularly know because everybody seemed to have everybody struggles did, yeah. with alcohol. Yeah. But um, yeah, she was, she was kind of great, you know. But anyway, after the, I suppose after the second attempt at, uh, at bombing our pub, there was a conversation about whether things should um, keep going and, and wait around for a, a third bomb which in which, you know, people might be killed or else just to pack up and, and leave. So that, that's what they did. And it meant that um, when the pub was sold in 1975, I went from living within walking distance of all the relatives on my father's side to most of them being gone. And I think that was a really um, significant change for me. Because you had this big extended family, community of people that were available and accessible to you. Yeah, and and, um, my my father's family, they all got on very well. Um, Mm. My father was the eldest of of six kids and um, they were so much fun when they were all together. And there was, um, yeah, I, I... I think I just really missed them uh, terribly w- when they were gone. And 
in some ways, maybe they hadn't moved um, very far away, but it just felt like like a world away. They moved, um, I mean, I guess, a hundred odd miles down down the road and bought a pub in um, in Kildare, and um, and then they were, they were gone. Right. And they say it takes a village to raise a child. Like, there's, there, you must have been so influenced by so many of them. Um, yeah, I think so. It was like, uh, you know, with my, uh, yeah, my aunts, uh, you know, my uncles and their wives, you know, when they had babies and stuff, um, they'd let me, um, you know, wield a nappy pen with their newborns and things. And yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. great crack. Yeah. yeah. So they moved and then you's moved. Yeah. So I think around four years later, um, we left. And I guess that was kind of for, for reasons to do with the troubles as well, maybe different reasons. Um, my father, um, found himself in a job which um, you know it should have been a promotion um, I, I guess except that he was the only um, Catholic in a workforce of about 150 people and that was very difficult for him at work yeah. and, um, a couple of times he was uh, followed home you know from the factory to the end of our driveway um, yeah by 1979 it had become pretty intolerable I think for them so, so we left as well I just can't imagine like living with that level of fear yeah or, or maybe not I don't want to put fear on I don't want to say that's the word but that, that level of tension yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, I don't know. I think I was always aware of this kind of, not particularly low level anxiety, actually. But right. um, because it was all the time, you're kind of used to it. And I suppose children, especially, or people are very, very adaptable, you know. So mm. like, you know, we got bomb scares in, in, in school and, and stuff like that. On the one hand, you'd be a bit terrified. But on the other hand, it was a way to get out of a classroom. And, um, you know, I can remember playing, you know, pretending to be Charlie's Angels. We used to be evacuated into the church. Yeah, uh, so very dramatic. I remember um, playing Charlie's Angels with some of the girls in my class and getting slapped around the head for it, you know, yeah. in, in the church, that kind of thing. So, yeah, um, yeah so so in some ways it it, it, um, it became very normal. I think maybe t- towards the end, after the bomb and then after that, um, it, it just became really, uh, really pretty frightening and difficult. And for those, again, who don't understand how things worked, you alluded to the fact that the pub got bombed but you were warned, so you were able to evacuate. What yeah. was the process of how those things were done? Was it a phone call? How was one warned? I think with the first one, there hadn't been a warning, actually. But the first one, um, a customer had passed a van. I think they could see that there was a beer keg in the vehicle, which okay. looked old familiar anyway. Um, I, I suppose it was a place that kind of regulars drank in. Yeah. And um, and there were wires sticking out of it. So they went in and said, well, that looks like a, a bomb. So that was, I think there was like 150 pounds of explosives in it or something. And that was defused. And then um, and then the second time, I'm not sure actually, I must ask. I'm not sure exactly about the yeah. warning. Very often it was a phone call sometimes to the premises or it might have been to the, the, the police or something. Obviously, you spent a year talking solidly about this book. And I know from experience that the first question people ask is, where did this book come from? Yeah. Um, so have you learnt about your own motivations for writing the book since talking about it? I mean, there has got to be a reason why you set the book at this time that was so uh, rupturing for you and your life, I suppose. Yeah. And also in that place that meant so much to you. Yeah, I think so. I think um, I, I've been flitting around the place saying, oh, I'm writing a novel, but I wasn't actually really doing a lot. So I made um, a couple of playlists and, um, and I was having many a hilarious hour for watching. I love again. that you started it with playlists. I did, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, I spent many a, a, a kind of delightful hour watching um, uh, videos of uh, like the REC in the 70s and things like that. Yeah. I, and I made some notes, but really I haven't got anywhere with it. And then uh, Mark, 2019, um, I got a diagnosis right. for melanoma and I had some surgery and I knew I was going to be off work for up to three months. And okay. I suppose 
I have cancer again, like for the second time. And I think that really, um, people say, oh, you're great, because I'm not great at all. I just deal with it by completely avoiding it. And because okay. I'm not on chemo, I'm on a different uh, type type of treatment. It means that it's possible for me to, you can't really avoid it if your hair's full out and you're thrown up and, yeah, and stuff, yeah, yeah. you know. Anyway, I um, I had some surgery and um, I spent a couple of days, um, I think three days watching, call my agent all through series and was many days and taking mm-hmm. um, some kind of opioids that they gave me in the hospital. And then I just thought, you have to get in the chair and, uh, and do right. something. I had an agent, but I didn't have a publisher or anything. And I didn't think anybody would ever see it. So um, really just to kind of stop myself from cracking up and worry about whether I might be dying or not. Um, I set myself a task and I try and write a thousand words every day. I also make myself promise, you know, that I wouldn't look back at the absolute drivel I'd written the previous day because if I had, that would have completely put me off just to keep pushing yeah. forward. Yeah. And also that I'd forgive myself if I flaked the odd time, you know, um, mm. all the characters would be like sick and, and uh, I'm pretty worried about myself. So um, yeah. I didn't really feel like I was getting a lot done, but after 11 weeks, I appeared to have um, about 65,000 words of, of a draft. Right. That was desperate. Yeah. It was very, um, it was very poor. <laughs> And it took a hell of a lot of work to clear it up. I, I think maybe part of the reason I chose to write this particular story uh, and set it in that time, I thought that I was plucking 1975 out of the air, but that is the year that, um, you know, right. that, that was a year of, of massive change in in my childhood. And maybe, you know, it is, it's a work of fiction, um, but it is kind of uh, the story of my family or, or, or people like us, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe because I thought I might be dying, I, um, that was the story that I wanted to tell or something. It sounds very really dramatic that I might be dying. Like, I didn't know that at the time, I didn't know if I was or not. You know, I had to wait for a while to so see. So, how long did you have to wait? Well, I had to wait until the rooms confirmed for me with scans that they figured that they got all the melanoma. And that seemed to be going okay until it became very clear then that they had got all the melanoma about a year and a half later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when it came back, yeah, I, I appeared to be at stage four and then ended up, you know, on the completely other uh, course of drugs. And you, you said you have it again now, or are you in remission? I'm still in treatment. Ultimately, you, you know, the out, outlook was pretty poor. Um, but there are these drugs that if they work, they really work. So after eight months on these mad medicines, I was tumor free. So the optimal time to, wow. to take this course of, of drugs is um, is two years. I, I, I think I'm finished at the end of November. OK, so not long now. Yeah. I mean, obviously, well, that was a catalyst for deciding to write a novel. But how else has it changed you? I suppose this diagnosis, your outlook, your perspective, your, the way you live your life, anything like that? Um, I think that I probably would have considered myself to be a very anxious person before I started writing or, or maybe the reason that I started writing. Um, I mean, I started writing by accident, but maybe the reason that I took to it or something was that um, myself and my husband, I'd been a chef and we had a had a restaurant for around uh, seven years. I really, um, within about six months of it opening, it was kind of doomed, I suppose. We opened it in 2007 and then by 2008 where we were looking at each other going, where the hell is everybody? Just because the economy was so bad. And somehow we managed to limp along for seven years. And um, and really, I was the complete and utter mess by the time um, that restaurant closed. Yeah, I'd stop sleeping and put on the weight. I was on antidepressants again. All this was like a recurring thing from, from when I was younger. Um, I think maybe when I was about seven or eight, I started to have like sleeping problems. Oh, like very neurotic sort of uh, behaviour uh, as well. But there were things that other kids in my class seemed to be able to do very easily that I just couldn't deal with. Mm. Um, and a lot of anxiety. But um, yeah, I mean, I get myself in a bit of a state before a scan. Like a terrible state. Jesus, fucking understandable. But actually, I don't worry about anything anymore. You don't worry about anything I anymore. just don't worry about anything. Wow. I don't care. Anything. 
before I had to do readings, when I started writing at the beginning, um, I would not sleep for about a month if I knew I had a reading coming up. I would uh, be like really shaky and um, couldn't control my voice. And uh, I would be obviously probably pretty physically shaky as well. And I think my heart would be beating really fast and everything. Um, I don't know what happened to me. I wish I'd actually got over all this when I was in my 20s or yeah. something. Do you know what I mean? I wish I'd have been like cancer in my 50s and stop me being a mess. Um, but there you go. Such is what. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so you talked about meeting your husband, getting this restaurant, and it kind of uh, being a very exhausting process trying to keep the restaurant afloat. Tell us now about your adult change, Louise, which happened around then, if I'm right. Well, so uh, that was in 2014. At that stage, the restaurant had been, uh, well, I've stayed in for the long. Um, I, I actually don't even know how we stayed open yeah. for that long. I think maybe part of it was that if you have a, a business that's not going well, at least it's known, you know, at least you're dealing with something that you understand. Um, but I think there could be a lot of terror around what happens if I stop. Got you. And I think that that's what we were really afraid of, was like, okay, bad and all as this is, what happens if we stop? So in January 2014, a friend of mine, Neve McCabe, um, who was a visual artist, um, had been invited to join a, a rising group. And she said, oh, you should come along. And I said, I'm like, that for and um, and uh, she kept sending me text messages all day. And, and why do you um, think she targeted you for that? I have no idea. I have, I honestly have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe maybe she thought. She, I mean, she she certainly knew that I was like going around the bends, and maybe she thought that I just needed to do something um right. completely different. Yeah. And um, so I went along with her, and it was shopping. Um, actually, the first meeting. Um, Describe it. What was it? Was it a group in a circle? Well, it was a group. So it was like about. I think the first night there were maybe about ten people, and they all seemed to be like very cool and very um, and like pretty much everybody there seemed to be in, have been involved in some form of creative practice, except me. Okay. And I, I honestly didn't think that cooking um counted, but I think now that it probably does. So Definitely. they were saying things like, "Oh, you know, um, I have like a chapbook of poems, and I'd love help with editing it," or. Um, I'm trying to write a, a memoir or somebody was halfway through a novel and then it came to me and I was like, oh, you know, I'm here because Neve made me come. <laughs> and I was like, here's in the face, completely mortified. Um, so at the end of the uh, of the meeting, it was agreed that every week someone would submit a short story of at least 2,000 words. And um, they said, well, is everybody, is everybody going to do that? And I, rather than like run out crying, which is what I felt like there, yeah. um, I said, okay. And I think I started trying to write it as soon as I um, got home. And how did that feel? 
I I can actually distinctly remember opening. I didn't even have a computer. I mean, eventually when I did write the story, I had to borrow my daughter's uh, laptop that she bought with her communion money. I, I'm a terrible mother. I shouldn't have let her buy a laptop with her communion money. But anyway, um, and it had like Hello Kitty stickers all over it and everything. And um, oh my God. I mean, probably within it, by the end of the first paragraph, I just thought, okay, I don't actually give a shite what happens to that business or anything else in this house as long as I can just keep doing this. What was the story? I mean, I think there might be something to do with my relationship with language. Um, I, I should probably have apologised at the outset because you introduced me as somebody from the North. And I am somebody, you know, that grew up in the North. But um, I was 12 when we left. And mm. um, when I went to my new school, every time I opened my mouth, people took piss out of my accent. And um, I think that I, I'm a pretty good mimic. So it was quite easy for me to ditch my accent. But I did actually... Go home on a Friday and think I'm not I'm not going to be speaking like that when I go back there in London because my life's not worth living. Yeah. So um, I did actually ditch my uh, Northern accent over uh, over a weekend uh, with the bitching. The reason now is that when I'm reading from um, trespasses, I have to put on a Belfast accent. I I heard an inflection when you were talking about trespasses earlier. I heard inflection. I heard it coming through. I heard it creeping in and then it creeped out again. Yeah, it might do that yeah. a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. My children say when I'm annoyed that I sound very well fast. That must be yeah, charming sure for do. them. Yeah, we'd be yeah. golden upstairs after when that fast actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So was the essay about that, about language? about? Um, no, so one worry that I think that um, my spoken voice doesn't really resemble what the, the voice in my head. Yeah. But when I write the voices, it, it's, it's the voice that's in my head. And it's northern. Wow. I think, I think that's it. Which sounds bonkers. Not at all. I feel more like myself when I'm writing than when I'm speaking. So when you read it back, you recognised yourself in a way that you don't when you talk or more yeah, than when I you I think talk. so. Or maybe just when I, I was doing it, I just feel more closer to myself, whatever that is or something, when I'm writing than I do when I'm speaking or moving around the world in other ways. Yeah. So it kind of felt like coming home a bit. Yeah. It is. I think it did. And uh, maybe there's something as well about um, uh, a, f- a friend of mine reckons that it has something to do with um, with the different parts of your brain that you're using or something like that. It's whatever mm. parts of the brain we're all running away from lions or something. Right. Um, well, I think that part of your brain can be very switched on if you're stressed a lot. Yeah. Um, of which you were. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that maybe not using that or taking a break from that was probably helpful or something. What happened next, I suppose? So you weren't in a very good place in your life. You go to this, it's this remarkable, familiar feeling of coming home, recognising whatever yourself in in a way that you haven't in a while. How did you, how did your life change from that moment? We still had the restaurant then and um, I think it, we, the restaurant closed maybe in August, that was in January and it closed in August. And when it did, um, I hardly even noticed. Um, so I went from this being like the, this thing that was like consuming me and ruining my life, you know, whether we could keep that business going or not, actually not giving a shit. Also, I think that maybe it gave me community in a way. For mm. years and years, I'd worked at night, I'd worked at weekends. Um, when my kids were born, I, I continued to do that. And my husband used to mind them at weekends and he'd send me photographs of them, like, you know, taking their first steps in the woods or women or later on, you know, with their first surfing lessons and stuff. And I was like working and thinking, oh, is that like really lovely? But back off. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that's probably common to like lots of people who into kind of weekend work or night work and everything. Then um, lots and lots of jobs. So you had more time on your hands, I suppose. I had more time. and um, But I, also, I think that maybe it's just my personality. I was never the sort of person who, uh, you know, there's some people like join things. 
Yeah. Like when my kids were in school, I used to uh, stand, you know, my arms folded as far away from the other mothers as possible. It was like, <laughs> my kids would come out and say, you're actually like a delinquent, you're not like one of the parents. I was like some horrible teenager who turned up, you know, under duress to pick up their children. I just couldn't do all that. I, I, I'm I also thinking of you in the writing group going like, I just came because she invited me. <laughs> I know, it's terrible. <laughs> oh, God. I love it. Yeah. So you went back to the group, I suppose. I did go back to the group. I was in the group for maybe around two years or something until, Amazing. yeah, then then when our restaurant collapsed, um, when I say collapsed, it just died a very slow death. Collapse was very dramatic. It's too dramatic yeah. for what happened. Um, it just sort of fizzled out. And, um, and one day it was just gone, you know. Uh, but my, we, it meant that we both had to go on the dole and um, I'd never been on the dole in my life and um, my husband then figured out that we were entitled to uh, further education grants. So um, he went back to school and trained to be an accountant and I shouldn't be laughing. Um, and I um, I went to Queen's in Belfast and did creative writing um, a couple of nights a week. I stayed in my auntie's house in, uh, in Belfast. So how was it being a mature student at Queen's? It was kind of hilarious. Um, I, I, I can remember, I was, so I used to stay at my aunt's house and um, she lives up the road a bit from Queen's. And, um, I, I was like hitting 50. Um, the only other parents in, in my class, uh, I think his mother was younger than me. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. they were all so young compared yeah. to me. And it was a bit awful. I remember the first day I went in and said hello and all of them answered me. And I did say to them afterwards, fuckers. Why no, did they not answer you? What did they think you were? I guess were? they were like, all like terrified or something themselves oh and in their own little world. But it was yeah. like, could you not even like, you know? Acknowledge my existence. I know, exactly. But um, but then actually after a while, um, I did um, I did get to know it. I think one night I might have been out with all of my classmates and uh, somebody came into my aunt's house and, and they said, where's Louise? And I overheard her saying, oh, she'll not be up for a while. She was out again with all them wee poets. This is what I was doing, like drinking with her year-old poet in the back of Lavery's bar. But anyway, I mean, I was writing too, obviously. Um, but it was very fun, I have to say. And um, I think as well, maybe the fact that I went to Belfast to do that and not to anywhere else probably yeah. made a difference as well. Because that was like, I mean, I guess it's the longest sustained time that, that I've spent in the place that I come from uh, since, since I was 12. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what age would you have been when you did that? I think I went back in there where I was 48, 49 and then um, wow. I stayed on and did a PhD as well. Wow. How was it to learn? Like, I, I just know from when I started writing, I could not get over the buzz it was to learn something new. Yes, I, I felt like that. I don't know what I was expecting. I think what it gave me reading was um, feedback. Uh, yes. You know, it gives you yes. some kind of community where, you know, if you write something and one person says, I didn't really get that out of like eight or ten then that's fine. You don't have to heed it. But I think if 10 of them were going, what the hell does that mean? Then there's a problem, you know, and it's something that you should probably fix. So I think it, from that point of view, it was good. It also gave me deadlines and it meant that I did have to produce a certain uh, a, a amount of, of work as well. And um, and also um, it's given me a connection to, um, I suppose because it was Queen specifically, it gave me a connection to, to Belfast as well. It introduced me to lots yeah. of kind of, yeah, other kind of work that people are doing at the moment. So tell me about Neve now, your friend Neve, who who made you go to the group. Is she laughing now? I think she did a degree in writing in Sligo and she did an MA as well. And um, she's won like every competition you can imagine and um and is apparently working on a novel as well. So well, Yeah. But even like in that writing group as well, um Una Mannion who uh, who set up the writing group has just had her second novel published by Faber. So it was um it was kind of unbelievable really. Uh, everybody was very serious from from the outset.
I suppose you weren't expecting this change to go to this writing group and for it to completely, you know, change the course of your life. But now that it has, how do you feel about change in general um, in terms of how you've changed your life? And do you think you could do it again? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the thing, mm, that's interesting. So uh, I think that when I joined that writing group, I didn't expect that anybody would ever think I was any good at writing. I didn't do it for that reason. Maybe that's not about the first meeting because I went to that by accident. But I think after I went back again, I kept going back. Mm. I think I wanted to get better at it for me. Um, I didn't think anybody necessarily have to see it. And I just liked how um, how it made me feel better or something. It sounds ridiculous. Um, I don't know, but it always oh, makes me true. feel better in ways. Like, you know, the way it is hard. And, um, and at various points, you just think you're mad. And I just think that maybe the changes that it brought, they were like really timely. And maybe by agreeing to go there with Neve that night meant that I was probably looking for something else. But I, I wouldn't have known. I didn't know that. I don't know if I could like have such radical changes again. We had um, Prue Leith on this podcast and she firmly believes in having a revolution in your life every 20 yeah. years. Like changing everything. And I mean, you, you've you've done that where you did the yeah. 30 years of the chef, but you kind of have done that. And so that would mean that maybe that when I'm 70 or something, there might be another round of changing. That's kind of scary. But I kind of think it's exciting too, no? Yeah, maybe it's like, okay, maybe it is, yeah. Just the, the fact that I mean, it's possible. It's hard. Just the fact that it's possible, you know? I know, I know what well, it is possible, that is for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, okay, change you'd still like to make or see? Last question. Oh, I'm getting a bit fucking sick of having cancer now, to be honest. I mean, I'm not like really sick or anything, but um, sometimes I have a bit. It's like the first phase of treatment caused my endocrine system to go haywire, so I have to take lots of drugs for that right. um, for the rest of my life, and that's a bit of a pain in the arse. Does that affect your day? Like, does it affect your existence? Well, it can, but I think I'd like to not be in treatment. But then I think once you have cancer, you're just like a cancer person for the rest of your life because yeah. it's always a thing. Like, you're always going to be scanned. There's, a, there's an awareness of it, even if you are in remission. Yeah. yeah, I think there is. In some ways, maybe that's okay because it means that um, maybe if something comes back, you'll you sure. know pretty quickly because you will be scanned pretty regularly. So maybe that's all right. But um, yeah, just some days I think you're fucking sick of the whole issue now. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's very fucking understandable. Yeah. Very. Well, listen, um, I thank you so much for this. Oh, hour. thank it's you for having me. Such God a pleasure. Me. The only thing that could have made it better was a, would have been a pint. And a we'll have point. to do that in real I life. No, we should. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd love it. I'd love it. Thank you so much. Do please rate, review and subscribe to Changes. It is so appreciated. And if you fancy sharing it on social media too, that would be amazing. The more people we can get listening to these episodes, the better we want to tell our stories far and wide. Changes is produced by Louise Mason through DIN Productions. Thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.